Hey everybody and welcome to episode 20 of the Happy Hour Harmonica podcast. Jerry Portnoy joins me today. Jerry grew up with the sounds of Maxwell Street in his ears. It took him a few years to pick up the heart, but when he did, he enjoyed a tremendous career. Starting out with Johnny Young's band, he'd only been playing for six years before his talents landed in the greatest harmonica chair there ever was, playing with the Muddy Waters Blues Band. Jerry went on to play in the legendary blues band and then with guitar legend Eric Clapton. He's played at the White House, Carnegie Hall and the Royal Albert Hall. A word to my sponsor again, thanks to the Lone Wolf Blues Company, makers of effects pedals, microphones and more, designed for harmonica. Remember, when you want control over your tone, you want Lone Wolf. Jerry Portnoy, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, Neil. Glad to be here. Starting off a little with your background, I understand you grew up in uh, in Chicago, the blues town, and uh, your father had a, a store on Maxwell Street, of all places. That is correct, and that world is gone. Yeah, as a kid, I, I spent a lot of time on Maxwell Street. My father had a, a rug store down there, and there was all kinds of music. There was every kind of humanity down there, and uh, there was music on the street. There were gospel groups, and, but mostly blues. Sunday was the big day, and people would swarm onto Maxwell Street from all parts of the Midwest because uh, you could buy almost everything. Everything was for sale, and you you haggled for everything. There were no set prices. It was quite a scene. And, of course, uh, little Walter used to play right down the street from my father's store, and I used to go into a, a delicatessen to pick up some sandwiches, and Walter would play right across the street from that at the alley. So I heard blues when I was growing up. Were you aware at that age that that was little Walter playing? And Oh, and... no, 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 no. I mean, I call it the, the soundtrack to my childhood, but it was the ordinary environment. As a child, it didn't strike me as anything extraordinary. It was just what I heard, you know, running around the streets. Of course, later on, you know, I knew, you know, who was playing down there, but at the time, it was just part of the scene. The main thing was that it imprinted the blues in my head. See, I was down there probably every Sunday morning from 1947 to 1953. In the 1953, the city was building an expressway, and they bought up the block that my father's store was on to make way for the expressway and that was the end of his business down there and that was the end of my trips down to Maxwell Street for a while. So uh, I didn't hear blues for a while and then you know 20 years later when I started hearing it again in the late 60s you know when when there was some interest in, in blues again and, and especially in white blues when record companies were signing people like you know Paul Butterfield and Johnny Winter and all that uh, that's when I started hearing blues again. And when I heard it, it just triggered something in me because there was just a shock of recognition. I'm probably from hearing it so much when I was a kid, and I just went crazy for it. 
Well, I think we're all, you know, really envious that you're able to experience that Maxwell Street, you know, busking sessions and, and what a time that must have been. Yeah? So amazing to hear that, that uh, first-hand account of that. I understand then you tried, a, you tried a few instruments out before turning to harmonica a little bit later. So what did you try out before you, you, know, you came to the harmonica? I mean, I generally liked music, and my family was quite musical. My mother was a singer. She had done some cabaret singing, and, and she, she actually passed uh, a couple auditions for the Lyric Opera in Chicago. So, you know, we heard music in the house, but uh, it wasn't blues. You know, my mother had opera records. My sister and my mother could both play the piano and sing. I tried my hand at, at various instruments. You know, back in the early 50s, you had a lot of door-to-door salesmen that would come by. And w- one time, some guy came by selling accordion lessons. <laughs> they signed me up for that, but I was a, I was a pretty small kid, and uh, I could hardly <laughs> hold that accordion up. As I say, the uh, the world was spared another rendition of Lady of Spain. You know, I tried that. I tried uh, learning guitar. I tried learning piano. And my experience was that everything took a certain degree of digital dexterity. You know, you had to use your fingers or both hands or feet or whatever. And in 1968, I was over at a friend's house. I was going to take a trip to Europe. I was at a friend's house and he had a harmonica sitting on his mantelpiece. And I picked it up and I put it in my mouth and it was almost like an instant epiphany. I just had an innate sense that I could make sense out of it because I was kind of oral. I had to be talking or shoving something in my pie hole or kissing my girlfriend, something with the mouth. So when I put the harmonica in there, it just made natural sense to me. I figured low notes to the left, high notes to the right, breathe in, breathe out, I can do this. And uh, my friend told me to take it with me when I went to Europe. I started uh, fooling around with it, playing little melodies that I heard or little song snippets or whatever. Were you learning it uh, while you were traveling around Europe? Is that when you first started learning on the, on the streets of Europe? Uh, exactly. I'd be hitchhiking and standing on the side of the road and just playing to kill the time and fool around with it. And then I met a guy who could, could play some blues. And then I went up to Sweden and I was staying at this kind of hippie crash pad. This is 1968. And one day I went downtown. This was in Uppsala, Sweden, which was a university town. I had a friend up there. And I went into this record store and I found this album by Sonny Boy Williamson, number two, Rice Miller. It had stars on it. Sonny Boy's head was on the, on the cover in profile and he had a harp stuck in his mouth the long way. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I bought the album, took it back to the place I was staying, and put it on the turntable, and I never came back. So I was already, you know, fooling around with harmonica, but once I heard that, I just said, that's it. From that moment, I was totally focused on learning how to play. <laughs> You came to the harmonica quite late. I think you were 24 where you were when you started playing. Yeah, exactly. I was almost 25. Started to, um, playing professionally in 1970. So what was that just a couple of years later? You started playing with Johnny Young band. Right. Yeah, I played with Johnny Young for a couple of years. Played some in Chicago and a lot of 
dates around the Midwest. We played colleges and clubs in Illinois, Indiana, Wisconsin, Michigan, Iowa. And I did that stuff with Johnny Little John too. And I also worked with Sam Way. You know, so how did you get the first everybody. break playing with Johnny Young's band? Because he was a he was a pretty big name back then, wasn't he? He was touring around and doing well for himself. Yeah, he was he was playing around Chicago quite a bit and around the Midwest. He played at a there was a club on the on the north side of Chicago on Wrightwood Avenue called uh, Alice's Revisited. I think uh, Holland Wolf cut a live album there. But anyway, Johnny was playing down there, and I first got to know him because shortly after I returned to Chicago in 1970, I was in Europe 68. I came back to the States in November of 68, and I went back out to California for for a while. And then my my dad got sick, and I went I moved back to Chicago in 1970. And of course. By that time, I was really focused on trying to learn how to play, and it was a great move to go back to Chicago because Chicago was just full of blues everywhere. I mean, you, all the guys were still, you know, go see Howlin' Wolf and Muddy Waters and Freddie King, and I mean, just it was an endless list because all the guys were still around back then. So when I got back to Chicago, I was down at the Jazz Record Mart on Grand Avenue, and that was, uh, you know, Bob Kester's place who uh, owned Delmark Records. And I saw a poster in there advertising Johnny Young at a great club on the north side called the Wise Fools Pub. So I went up there. He was going to be there Friday and Saturday. So I went up there Friday night. And I'll never forget, I mean, I, I was walking towards the club, and as I approached the club, I could I could hear Big Walter's harp just pouring out of the doorway. And when I got to the door, I could hardly pull my money out of my pocket fast enough to get in there. And I walked in, and then the music room was uh, to the left, and I, I peeked in the music room, and there was Johnny Young on stage with the Aces, with Louis Myers, Dave Myers, and Freddie Bilo. And Big Walter was playing harp. So, you know, I was completely hypnotized and, uh, I stuck around till the end of the night. And then I kind of went up and talked to Walter and Lewis for a little bit. And, uh, I went back the next night and eventually I would start going over to Walter's house. I asked him if he'd give me a lesson. So he said, well, call me. He gave me his number and I called. He said, well, come by tomorrow. And I went down there sat around and I did that uh, you know a number of times and I'd hang out with Big Walter so subsequently he would play you know with Johnny Young again down there and uh, one time I went down there and I'm sitting in in the audience the bandstand wasn't that large so the aces and Johnny were on the stage but Walter was standing on the floor playing he in the middle of the set while he's playing he walks over to my table and he hands me the the microphone and of course i had some harps in my pocket i had the right key and you know he just gave me the mic here you you finished the song so because he knew i could play a little bit because i was you know hanging out with him so i got up there and and uh finished the tune and i i did another one so that's how johnny first knew of me and then uh he was playing at Alice's Revisited one night and I went down there and uh sat in with him and he told me that he had some gigs coming up in Wisconsin and would I play play with him. So that was that was my first professional gig was Appleton, Wisconsin. Going back to uh to Big Walter, yeah, you had some lessons with him. What what were they like? Well <laughs> they're nothing like that. 
technical lessons like I would teach or any of these other guys teaching now where, you know, they tell you what holes to play and uh, what holes to block with your tongue and what syllable to pronounce, you know, none of that. If I said something like, uh, oh man, show me, show me how you play the intro to uh, Evening Sun which is one of his great numbers that he did with Johnny Shines. And uh, he'd say, well, it'd go like this. And then he'd just play. And that was, that was the lesson. Now, I would go down there with a the tape recorder you know, tape some of it, and then I'd, I'd go home and I'd listen, and I'd, I mean, I'd get frustrated, because, I mean, Walter, his sound, there was nothing like it. I mean, he'd play a foot from my ear, acoustically. It was just the greatest sound you ever heard come out of that instrument. So I'd go home, and I'd listen to the tape, and I'd, I'd kind of get mad. I'd say to myself, well, you know, he's just a human being. He's got lungs, he's got lips, he's got a tongue, he's you know, a mouth just like I do. So there's got to be a way I can figure this out. Obviously, nobody really exactly matches anybody's tone. You know, I mean, I don't sound exactly like Big Walter, but I, I managed to figure out the basics of how to get a good sound on a harmonica. I learned all my tongue blocking and, you know, things like that. I learned how to bend with my tongue on the harp. You know, I was a, I was a pretty good technical player, but, you know, obviously that's not the... Uh, that's not the end-all and be-all of playing. The technical ability is one aspect, but, you know, knowing how to play blues is the other. And so you played with John Young, then, and so it gave you a break playing sort of professional land, uh, level with blues bands. And then in 1974, you know, you got the, the greatest gig uh, known to any harmonica player, which is playing with Muddy Waters' band. So maybe tell us what led up to that time, maybe what you were doing before then, and, and then, of course, how you ended up joining Muddy's band. Well, it's quite a story. Well, of course, after Johnny, I stayed with Johnny Young for a couple of years, and then uh, I played with Johnny Littlejohn for a year and a half or so, and he was a wonderful player, and he's very underappreciated. And like I said, I played with Sam Lay for a while. I had a day job at Cook County Jail. You know, I would play around town at night. I was starting to get my own band together, and I had rented some rehearsal space, so I was just starting on that little project. I got word that Johnny Young had passed away and there was going to be a benefit for him at a club called On Broadway. The morning of the benefit, I, I went to work at the jail and I put a few harmonicas in my pocket because I figured after I got off of work, I'd grab some dinner and go down to this uh, benefit, you know, get up there and play with somebody. I, I knew all the guys around Chicago and I figured I'd get up with whoever was there. I had no idea that Muddy himself was going to be there. So after work, I grabbed some dinner, and then I went up to this club. When I walked in, the place was packed solid, wall to wall. I had the urge to turn around. I just didn't feel like dealing with all those people in a big, massive crowd. And I, I, I really thought about turning around. But just as I was about to do it, I looked towards the bandstand, and at the table next to the bandstand, there was Muddy Waters. And he was looking directly at me, and there was no doubt about it. He locked eyes with me. So I'm looking at him, and he motions with his little forefinger, like, come over here. That was like a, uh, 
a royal summons, and uh, obviously I, I put all thoughts of leaving out of my mind, and I elbowed my way towards the uh, towards his table. When I got there, he looked up and he asked me if I would play his set with him. Now, I had sat in with Muddy before, because I used to hang out with uh, Paul Osher, who used to play with him beforehand. So Muddy knew me, and I had sat in with him before, and I looked around and I saw all the other guys in his band except Mojo Buford, who was his harp player at the time. So anyway, when it came time for him, I went up there and played his set with him. And when I came down, he, he was quite pleased with my playing. He uh, told his manager to get my, my number. You know, I thanked him for letting me play with him. It was an honor. And then I, I left and I walked outside the door of the club and there was a little awning over the door and it was raining. So I decided to wait under the awning, not only for the rain to lighten up, but also because I knew that Muddy, having finished his set, wouldn't be wasting any time there and he'd be leaving and I could thank him again for letting me play with him. So sure enough, uh, a minute or two later, Muddy came out with his manager and he looked at me and he said, I get emotional every time I say this. He looked at me and he said, can you travel? These are the exact words I said to him. I said, Muddy, wherever in this world you want me to be, you just tell me and I'll be there. He looked at me and said, you can hear from me. You know, I went home and I'm, you know, 10 feet off the ground. I'm fantasizing. But, I, you know, eventually I, I decided, okay, let's get back to reality. It's probably not going to happen or whatever. And, uh, so a couple of days passed. That was on a Tuesday. I remember that was on a Tuesday. And Friday, I came back from uh, work at the jail, and I was in my little uh, studio apartment, and the phone rang. The voice on the other end said, uh, Jerry? I said, yes, this is Jerry. And he said, this is, this is Scott Cameron, Muddy Waters' manager. And when he said that to me, time stopped. Because I knew there was only one reason he could possibly be calling me, but it was, it was too big to stare in the face. So I just kind of went on automatic pilot and let him talk. And he said, well, Muddy wants you to call him. Do you have his number? Which I did. And uh, he said, call me back as soon as you talk to him. So I said, okay. And I hung up and I dialed Muddy's number. And uh, he said, hello. And I said, uh, hey, Muddy, this is, uh, this is Jerry, you know, the harmonica player. And he said, well, we start May 25th in Indianapolis, uh, Indiana, and uh, the boys are playing down at Queen Bees this weekend. You might want to go down there and get used to them. And, you know, I'm just standing there holding the phone. I, said, I didn't even know what else to say. I said, okay, Muddy, I'll be, I'll be down there. Thanks a lot. I hung up. And then I immediately called Scott Cameron back, and he told me, uh, you know, I asked for my Social Security number, told me to get a passport because we were going to be playing on the French Riviera the following month. So, And then I said to him, because I had a real job at Cook County Jail, and I said to him, you know, i got to quit my job. It's no problem, but there's no chance of this falling through, is there? And Scott told me, look, he said, Muddy's word is good as gold. It's a done deal. And then when I hung up with Scott, I just went crazy, man. I, I ran out of my apartment. I didn't even close the door. I, I was just running to burn off steam, and I ran up uh, uh, Sheridan Road toward this uh, record store that a friend of mine had, and I burst in the door and said, Muddy Waters just hired me. And uh, that's how it went down. That's I mean, amazing. And I said that the, the best gig you can get is playing with Muddy Waters. I'm a massive fan as well. It must have been such a thrill to get that. 
Well, yes. I mean, it's a total one-off. I mean, there's only one job like that. Like I say, you can want to be a brain surgeon, and there's a path to be a brain surgeon. You can study, and you do your internship, and eventually you're a certified brain surgeon. But if you want to play harmonica with the Muddy Waters Blues Band, uh, that's that's a one-off. The stars have to align for that, and fortunately for me, they did, and I'll be forever grateful. Yeah, well, in testament to your great playing as well, it's like you say, you've only been playing for six years, so get to get hired by Muddy's band, fantastic. But then you went on, I think, and you played with Muddy through the 70s, well, from 1974 to about 1980, and you released right. what I think are some of Muddy's best albums, certainly following from his early sort of classic, you know, Little Walter Chess Time, you know, obviously we'd all look at those albums right. as being the really right. classic Muddy albums. But those yeah. albums in the 70s, you know, you played on the I'm Ready album, you played on the uh, the Muddy Mississippi Waters Live album, and also the King right. B album, those three, yeah. Right. Three really great albums in that period in the 1970s. And I think Muddy was really, a, you know, at a really great level at that stage, and, and, and the band, wasn't it? I mean, we had the sound of that band, that lazy lope in the rhythm section and all the air and space in that band. You know, I'm, I'm not a fan of frantic sounding mu- music. That band was the opposite of it. It had that kind of a lazy lope to it and a lot of space and air, a very relaxed sound to it. What was, uh, you know, what was the sort of role of the harmonica in the band? How was that explained to you? You know, maybe by Muddy himself? Well, we never rehearsed ever <laughs> and nothing was ever explained i mean he hired you because he figured you knew enough about his music and you had the chops and whatever and the sensibility to be able to do the job so you didn't really have any direction but you know the direction was in the in the classic records and obviously i had immersed myself in those i knew where to where to put it i mean the the function of otis span's famous dictum that the harmonica is the mother of the band uh, that's true in a chicago blues band it is it's it's the second voice to the to the actual vocal you know generally you want to get in and out you want to answer the vocal line or comment on it or embellish it and then get out what muddy would say is he would say give me the send back which means after you do your fill you finish the fill in a way that sets up the singer to come back yeah, I mean, absolutely, because because like you said, the harmonica features very heavily in uh, in Muddy's music. So you know, in many ways, you're probably playing more than you might do with some other bands. Yeah, but Muddy obviously wanted that, didn't he? As you say, you're not stepping on the singing, but it's weaving in and out the singing a lot, isn't it? The harmonica on, on those on right, those songs it's, it's playing, weaving yeah. in and out, and it's knowing how to get in and get out, and how to get out in the right way, like to set him up. Sometimes you can play while the singing is going on, but you have to make sure that you're supporting underneath the vocal, that you're not kind of cross-cutting it, because uh, if you did that, you might get a look from Muddy that, that he wasn't pleased. Yeah, and, and then you talk about obviously knowing the music, which is our moniker players, we all do, particularly that, that early sort of 1950s stuff. So a song like Baby Please Don't Go, which has got a very recognizable six solo, which you play...
did you just choose to kind of try and stick reasonably close to the original solo, or were you, was that instructed to do? So? No, he never he never told you, but he liked it when you played Walter's parts. If you got close to the original. That was a good thing. You know, he didn't really stop you from playing your own. You know, I mean, I didn't play everything like Walter, and I no. have my own solos or whatever. You know, a lot of his classic versions that were done in the early 50s, that that was the template. And uh, the closer you could get to that on, on uh, a lot of the songs, uh, the better he liked it. Yeah, and superb. And you, like you say, you, that lazy feel to that band and your style, very smooth, but fitted really nicely into that sound. I think so. Fantastic. So you played with Muddy for six years. You toured all around the world. Uh, you take it with him and, uh, did lots of gigs. It was a full-time job for you during those six years, was it? Oh, yeah, yeah. Must have been a real thrill. I heard you talking about the first time you appeared and they announced you were in the Muddy Waters, uh, the Muddy Waters band and that was a great feeling. Maybe tell us about that. Well, yes, on the, on the very first gig, like when I called Muddy to uh, Scott's instructions and he said we start May 25th in Indianapolis, that was the gig. It was at a baseball stadium. We walked out on stage. It was a, it was a hot summer day. We took our places in front of our amps and I'm standing there and I'm holding the mic and the harp and I'm waiting for the, for the PA announcer to, to give us our intro. And finally, this disembodied voice over the PA announced, uh, over the PA system said, ladies and gentlemen, the Muddy Waters Blues Band. When I relate that story, it just thrills me. To hear those words for the very first time and know that I was part of it. Every other, I mean, I played at the White House and Carnegie Hall and the Royal Albert Hall. I did all this other stuff. But honestly, God, that was the single greatest thrill I ever had was hearing those words for the very first time. And then I just uh, kicked off uh, off the wall, and we were off to the races. But uh, that thrill has never been surpassed. So, yeah, amazing. So so you played with Muddy for six years, and then in 1980, you left the band. I think you went on to form the legendary blues band. Is that the reason you left Muddy, what, what happened there? Well, it's a long story, and if I ever finish my book, the truth will finally come out. But... Uh, suffice it to say that we had some some business disagreements at the root of which were his manager. It got to be an untenable situation. They would try and divide and conquer and all this kind of stuff. And so the band, we, we decided we were going to stick together. You know, we were all technically independent contractors, but we decided we're going to stick together as a band. So we had a a bit of a dispute with them. I'll just say it led to the breakup of the band, and we went off on our own as a legendary blues band, but it was just the four of us. It was me, Willie Big Eye Smith on drums, Calvin Jones, Fuzz Jones on bass, and Pine Top. Guitar Jr. went his own way, and Bob Margolin went his own way, but the four of us stuck together. I wasn't really in favor of that name, but Willie kept insisting that, you know, when we were with Muddy, we would frequently be introduced as Muddy Waters and his legendary blues band. So Willie said, well, we'll just be the legendary blues band. You know, I thought it was a bit self-aggrandizing, but uh, nonetheless, it actually worked to our benefit, especially initially, you know, getting off the ground. We got a contract with Rounder Records, and we put out our first album.
I had been, well, I knew this about Muddy. Now, Muddy was very upset that we left, but I knew that he took great pride in the people that came out of his bands, that he turned out stars. I mean, if you think about B.B. King and his long career, you can ask, even blues fans, you can ask people, well, name somebody that was in B.B. King's band, and they can't name a, maybe they can name Sonny Freeman's drummer, maybe. But most people can't name anybody that was ever in B.B.'s band. But Muddy turned out blues stars all over the place. You know, Otis Spann and James Cotton. I mean, people that were with Muddy, Junior Wells, Big Walter, George Smith, all these guitar players, I mean, Pat Hare. The list is endless. If you were in Muddy's band, that put you on the map. So I knew that if we proved our point and were successful, that Muddy would take great pride in that. I knew that. I, I knew that Muddy would say, those are my boys. I trained them. You know, he'd take pride in our success. After our first album came out, uh, Life of Ease, I went to Muddy's house. The door opened and he threw his arms around me. And uh, I went in there and we ate. And he brought up a couple of bottles of champagne and told me how proud he was of us and how much he liked the record. And that was a great thing because a month later he was gone. For me, it was so important to have that meeting and, so to speak, bury the hatchet. There was no real hatchet, but the upset of the band breaking up, that totally healed it. And I was glad I had that opportunity to to be with Muddy in that circumstance. Yeah, so, so then moving on. So you, you were with the Legendary Blues Band for... Um for another six years. I think you got, um, was it, was it an album then you got nominated for a Grammy, was it? Is it was that with the You're Gonna Miss Me When I'm Dead and Gone album? That that was a tribute to uh, Muddy Waters album, I think, actually. Was oh, that, yeah, was, yeah, that was a Grammy, yeah, that was a yeah. Grammy nominee. And then you played with Ronnie Earl's band for, in, the, in the late 80s before forming your, your own band in the Streamliners. Uh, well, and- actually, first I started, I had a band called the, I think it was yeah. called the Sidewinders, before the Streamliners. But at any rate, that went on for a, a few months, and then Ronnie Earl came to me asking to start a band because he wanted to leave Roomful. And uh, he had left once before trying to go on his own, and it didn't work out. So he came to me asking me to put a band together, and uh, so I did, and we were successful, but he wanted to go in some other direction, and so that didn't work out, and so then I put together the uh, Streamliners, and I worked that for about four years, and then I got the call from Eric to go to play with him at the uh, Royal Albert Hall in 1991. And that was the year he did the 24 nights. He did six six nights with a small rock band, six nights with a big band with a big rock band that included horns, and he had six nights with a blues band, and six nights with an orchestra. So that was his 24 nights. So I was part of the six six nights with the uh, All Star Blues Band. We had Johnny Spampanato on bass. Jamie Oldacre on drums, J. 
Johnny Johnson on keyboards, and then the guitar players were Eric, Buddy Guy, Albert Collins, Robert Cray, and Jimmy Vaughn. It was quite a thrill. It was a great show. And he invited me. He was quite taken with my playing, I guess. And at, at any rate, before I even left, he invited me back for the uh, shows in 92. He wanted me to come back the following year. So I left England, I think, in March, end of February. I know, we played at the Albert Hall every year, February, March. At, at any rate, I came home. And I think it was two weeks later that the accident happened where his son fell out the window. So the shows in 92 didn't happen. But he called me back to do the Albert Hall in 93, and I became a part of his regular band because he was going to devote himself exclusively to blues for a while. So I stayed with him almost four years, and we did the uh, you know, From the Cradle album. So how did it compare playing to sort of a big sort of rock band like Eric Clapton and playing with Muddy Waters? Did it did it feel different or kind of similar? Or? Uh, well, it, it wasn't quite as loose. We actually did rehearse. <laughs> but as a band leader, Eric was very similar to Muddy. I mean, he hired you because he, he thought you could do the job and he let you do it, you know, according to your own lights. In that respect, he was similar to Muddy as far as being fairly laissez-faire. He didn't really give you a lot of specific instruction. I mean, occasionally he'd say, can you play this line? And, you know, if I could play it, I'd do it, or I'd find a substitute, uh, you know, note or something like that. But uh, there wasn't a lot of uh, instruction. What about but your I, kind of equipment playing in such a big setup, you know, playing in these massive stadiums? Uh, were you just, did you just use your own amp and mic and then they just mic'd it up? Was there any particular setup? No, I mean, I'd use my own uh, mic and amp and, uh, you know, his crew is, doesn't get any better than, than Eric's crew. They know what they're doing and they'd, you know, they'd mic it up or uh, actually they they tended to put my mic, some kind of, they'd have a baffle on it or something because they thought it was very loud. It was just an ordinary 410 basement. That was their job. My job was to play the harmonica. Their job was sound reinforcement, so they they took care of that end of it. One time, I forget where we were flying to. We were in London, and we were, went to the airport and got on a you know the private jet to fly somewhere. And I was sitting on the airplane, and I realized that I, I had forgotten my harps, my harp case, which I had left sitting in front of the hotel on the sidewalk. And I panicked, and I told Peter Jackson, the road manager, and he was not happy. So he got up and jumped in a limo and ran back to the the, uh, to the hotel, and my harp case was still sitting there on, on the sidewalk in front of the hotel, and he grabbed it and brought it back to the airplane, and he said, you're not touching your, your equipment again, because I would carry my own stuff around. After that, the roadies took care of They assigned me a roadie, and when I'd finish playing, instead of packing up my own stuff and carrying my harp case off the stage, I just left everything sitting there, and the roadies would pack it up, and it would be sitting there the next time I walked on stage. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, so brilliant. So playing with, you know, with Muddy Waters, then playing with Eric Clapton, and you had some tremendous gigs you've had there. And, and then you also went on, the, you did a bit of recording with Bill Wyman, uh, the bass player from the Rolling Stones as well. 
Uh, and then you did you recorded a few albums under your own name as well. You released the Poison Kisses album, which is reissued as Home Run Hitter in uh, 1991, right. and then another right. album in 2001, which is your your second solo album. I think is Down in the Mood Room, which right. contains quite a, quite a different eclectic sort of mix of songs, doesn't it? Quite a few jazzy songs on there. You've got Doodling. I think there's a Horace Silver, the first one. You've got Stormy Weather, Lullaby of Birdland. So yeah, as well as blues and the other music, you've got um, a few sort of jazz tunes yeah. on there as well. Yeah, there were there were some tunes that I always wanted to fool around with or uh, record, and uh, you know they were the kinds of things that you couldn't really do with a straight ahead blues band. But of course, uh, my great friend Duke Grobelard, who can play any kind of American music, he helped produce it, and we recorded it at his studio. Yeah, I was quite pleased with the result, and I wanted to show off, you know, just some other aspects to the diatonic harmonica, what it could do. I wanted to record with horns, and I wanted to make the harmonica stand up against the horns, you know, be as muscular, and uh, I think I was pretty successful with that. Yes, yeah, so, yes, yeah, a great album, as you say. So you obviously had that interest in, in sort of jazz standards, and were there, you know, Stormy Weather and Lullaby Birdland, were those songs that you'd played for a long time, you wanted to, you wanted to get down? No, I just really did them for, I just did them for that album. Although uh, Misty, which isn't on that album, which is on the uh, on the other album, I still I do that in live in my show. And this is all on diatonic harmonica, as you say. Yeah, I I only play chromatic on a need to basis. All all the songs that Muddy did, you know, I'm ready or uh, I just want to make love to you or so you know I learned to play I learned to play those songs. I was never uh, all that enamored of the chromatic. And it always felt like somebody put a baseball bat in my mouth. So, <laughs> so uh, it's not uh, something I ever really concentrated on. I learned to use it well when I needed to. Yeah, I, so you could uh, certainly get around playing some third-position blues stuff on the chromatic. That's how oh, you used sure. it. Yeah. And then you also did an album with uh, Pantop Perkins as well. Uh, Kidney Stew is one of the songs on there in 2005. So yeah, you carry on guesting with other people through the years as well. Oh yeah, I played on uh, played on something with Bo Diddley too. Yeah. So yeah, so a fantastic crew playing some fantastic people. So yeah, congratulations, Joe. You also played at the White House as well and at Carnegie Hall. So uh, did you play for a president at the White House? And who was that? Yes, I played for Jimmy Carter. I'm sitting at my desk, actually looking at a picture of me at the White House with Jimmy Carter shaking my hand. Yeah, I played at the White House, Carnegie Hall, Radio City Music Hall, the Royal Albert Hall, 
it, it's very strange when I think about it. It, 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 it seems like another world, like it happened to a different person. It's very strange when I think about my own career and how fortunate I've been. Yeah. And you also played on Sesame Street. Yeah, I did. I wrote a song for, actually the very first song I ever wrote was the song for Sesame Street. Then I realized I had a little bit of a gift for it. Yeah, in 1977, when I was married to my first wife, uh, she was Canadian. She was an artist, and a, a friend of hers was a producer for uh, Sesame Street, and he asked me if I could write a song, and gave me the, the visuals, what it was going to be appearing with. And uh, so I, I wrote a, a clever little song, and then I did a, a little harmonica thing for the letter Z. Yeah, my daughter was, I think, uh, maybe four or five, and I had my daughter and a and a, a bunch of her little friends in the studio, and I had them shout into the microphone, Zed, Z, you know, it's part of the Sesame Street thing. I had some little jingle I played for the letter Z, and I still get royalty checks. <laughs> They're only for a few pence, but. Uh... Royalties are the greatest thing ever invented because you only do the work once and you get paid forever. So uh, as well as your playing as well, you, you've done some teaching. I, I remember listening to your, um, when I was young, your Jerry Portnoy's Blues uh, Harmonica Masterclass. Was, I think that was a, an audio recording, wasn't it, rather than a video at that time? Yes, it's, it's three audio CDs. So is that still available by your website? At the moment, it's not available on my website because I've got some kind of problems with PayPal. I've been remiss in addressing that, but when I do, eventually it'll be available on my website. It's, it's, it is actually available on Amazon, but I, I'd rather people order it through me so I actually make something on it. <laughs> yeah. And also you, you do some teaching now through uh, Sonic Junction. I have some lessons there. I haven't done any fresh lessons in a while, but there's quite a quite a library of my lessons. And when I stopped doing them live, I turned it over to Dennis Groomling and to my buddy Rick Estrin. So they still contribute new material. Most of my lessons, I break down classic songs, you know, Key to the Highway or Juke or, you know, a bunch of stuff from the classic Chicago blues songbook. Yeah, that's great. I'll put some links up to that. Um, and the question I ask each time, Jerry, talking, you know, sort of linked a little bit to teaching, is if you had 10 minutes to practice just 10 minutes in the day, what would you spend those 10 minutes working on? The two-hole draw. I once walked around my house for almost two weeks playing nothing but the two-hole draw. It's the tonic note, and it's your root note. It's where you come back to all the time. Playing long tones, you know, note selection is very important. I mean... I've never particularly cared about impressing people with technique. The point of playing music is to communicate emotion. And so whatever tools you need to accomplish that is is what you should use. And you don't need to use anything more or anything less. To me, what moves people, what moves people emotionally, what reaches them inside and stirs them is the sound of the note. While your note selection is important because the combination of notes and where it's leading can create moods and feelings. It's the actual sound of the note that gets up in people's chest. And so the first order of business in playing music is to make a good sound come out of your instrument. That's the first thing. And then know where to put it. 
And that is really what music is about. Make a beautiful sound come out of your instrument and know where to place it. Just getting your note to sound good. You know, if I had 10 minutes, I'd just sit on one note and try and make it, make it beautiful, make it sound different ways, put different vibratos on it, uh, tongue floaters, make it uh, sharp sounding, trebly, try and make it more bass sounding. Learn how to control that note. If you have an hour a day to practice, whatever you're going to practice, you're better off if you have 60 minutes to devote to practicing, then you're better off bringing that up into practicing four times a day for 15 minutes or three times a day for 20 minutes because it's all about muscle memory. And the more times you come back to reinforce it, the more effective it will be in imprinting that muscle memory. So if you've got 60 minutes, you're better off doing three sessions of 20 minutes spaced through the day or four sessions of 15 minutes because each time you come back, you're reinforcing that muscle memory. If you just practice once for an hour every day, I don't think you get the same result. Yeah, no, thanks very much. And the harmonic, of course, that's your vocal instrument, getting that tone is so key to it, isn't it? Yeah, so great. Questions about gear to talk through now. The first question is: What was your what's your harmonica of choice? Uh, I like to play either the the Marine Band Deluxe or the Marine Band Crossover. Either one of those is is fine by me. Those are the ones I play. Yeah, both great ones. Yeah, and I really like the crossover myself. What about back in the day with the, with the seventies? There, when you were playing with Muddy, what did you? Was it the Marine Bands back then? Yeah, just stock uh, just stock Marine Bands right out of the box although you know later uh felisco was making them for me but it took i had to really adjust my playing to play those feliscos because they're so quick and so responsive i had to kind of back off my attack uh, i just play them out of the box now just uh regular marine band deluxes or uh, crossovers in, in the 90s or i forget when it was when the quality the of the stock marine bands went down because they weren't being machined. I think the things they were being machined on were old, and at any rate, they were leaky, and they just didn't play well. But uh, due to a lot of noise being made by some of the professional players, you know, Steve Baker and Rick Epping and Joe Felisco and Honer paid attention, and they got the quality of their instruments uh, back up to back up to snuff. Do you have a favorite key of diatonic? I never leave the house without an A harmonica in my pocket. <laughs> I generally like to play, well, at least for instrumentals, between an A flat and a C. Really between A flat and B flat is my favorite, but C is, is okay too. I like the lower key harps. I mean, they're, they're, they're a bit warmer, not quite as stiff, but, and, and they're, it's just a warmer, richer sound especially on the chords. 
So I, I like that range from uh, A flat to C. Yeah, that's the popular answer to that question. Yeah, and you talk about playing stock chords. So I'd say you don't play any different tunings. Well, no, I. Uh, oh well, there's there's one song I play, an original of mine uh, called uh, "Can't Remember to Forget." I use a harp on that where I I, I file the five draw so that it it's raised a half step. And actually, I think they may, I, I think they make a commercial harmonica with that tuning. I don't, I don't know what they call it. I'm not much of a gear person. I do raise that five draw a half step because it gives me a note I, I really want. That's the only one I use on a regular basis. Now, I do have a complete, I've got all kinds of different tunings because there's a, the mad genius of the harmonica is a fellow named uh, Pierre Beauregard. I don't know if you ever heard his name. He actually lives close to me. He lives on Cape Cod, where I reside. He's a terrific harmonica player and a great musician. And he, he builds all these harmonicas with different tunings. And some of them are really, really useful. The analogy I can give you to that is that, let's say you're a touch typist. And you can, you know, you can type 90 words a minute or something. Now, somebody presents you with a typewriter where the keys are all in a different place. Well, now you, you have to hunt and peck what you're looking for. So on a standard Richter tuning harmonica, diatonic harmonica, I can improvise. I know where all the notes are. But when you have a harmonica that's where the note layout is completely different, in order to freely improvise on that, you have to really know that harmonica and spend a lot of time with it. So I have a lot of different tunings that Pierre has made for me. I have all his prototypes, the soul band and the jazz band and the folk minor band. He's got all these tunings because he understands how chords work. So for specific things, if I were called on to do a session and I had to listen and know well, that's not going to be easy on a regular Marine band. And, you know, I, I would sometimes fool around and see, well, maybe one of these other tunings I can get what I, what I want to play on it. So apropos of that, I will tell you a quick little story. I called up Pierre when I, just before I was going over to play with Eric one time. I think it was before I went over in 93. And at any rate, I called Pierre up and I said, hey, uh, I, I'm going over to play with Eric. Do you have a harmonica I can play Layla on? <laughs> so he says, yeah, I think so. Come on over. So I go over to his house, and sure enough, he gives me this harp, and, and it, it's all there. So cut to England. I'm sitting on stage uh, at our rehearsal, and we would rehearse in like an airplane hangar with the full stage and the full sound and all that. We were taking a break, but er Eric starts fooling around with uh, Layla because he used to do that, you know, with his rock band. And sometimes when we do a mixed show, he do an, you know, an acoustic version. At any rate, we're standing, we're sitting on stage at rehearsal and he starts playing Layla and I grabbed this harp and I started playing it with him and it blew his mind. <laughs> and he looked at me, he said, how are you doing that on a harmonica? I'm going to confess on, on your show now. I didn't tell him that I had a special, I just mm -hmm. said, well, you hired Jerry Portnoy. I just said, I come prepared. Mm -hmm. and, so do you know uh, what that tuning was, particularly to play that? 
I can't really recall what uh, Pierre called it. I'm, I'm not really sure. But you can remain anyway. your secret, Jerry. That's okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I'd play, uh, you know, other songs of his when we do mix show. I'd play uh, Tears in Heaven, but I played that on a, on a regular regular harmonica. But we did, uh, I think we did My Father's Eyes, and I had some special harmonica for that. So as a musician, I try and do whatever the job calls for. So if it's something I can't play on a standard tuning, you know, I'll look, if I, if I have a harmonica that can get closer to what I want, I'll, I'm not averse to using it. But what, what happens is that I learn a specific part and can play that part. I, I would have trouble just completely improvising on one of those harmonicas off the top of my head because. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Don't, yeah. Don't play out. Do you use any overblows at all? Not a single one. No, no. overblows, no overdraws. Can't teach an old dog new tricks. Mm-hmm. And what about your embouchure? You, you mentioned that you play uh, tongue blocking. Is that, is that your favorite embouchure? I use both, and I switch seamlessly. You know, obviously, tongue blocking is essential for certain kinds of things and sounds and whatever, and octaves and other things. You get that big, uh, fat, chord for a split second under your lead note but also you know I, I also use my lips for certain things you know triple tonguing and also it's a treblier sound than tongue blocking so but at any rate i'm i can bend with my tongue on the harp or with my lips i can do pretty much i can play out of both sides of my mouth i just switch seamlessly just whatever i just think about the music and let my mouth execute it whichever way it wants to go and it usually chooses the good way and amplifiers, you mentioned the basement for your big amp. Is that still your large amp of well, choice? Well, I, I have a, uh, it's actually a boutique copy of a 410 basement. I used to have a real 410 basement, and then I had the reissue. I had, I still have it. It's actually serial number 00005. The amp I use now is a Victoria, which is made by a guy in Illinois. It's a fabulous amp. It's all hand-wired. It's all handmade. And it's uh, made to the original specifications of uh, the original 1959 410 basement. And uh, Mark Bayer, who owns the company and who builds these, he got the original specs from the guy who, ri- who originally built the amp. And um, what about a small amp? Do you, do you use a small amp when it's called for? If I have a little gig, I really don't like to drag the big thing around. Uh, it hasn't gotten any heavier, but I've gotten weaker. I'll be 77 in November, so I don't like dragging that thing around. Oh. Uh, so I've got a little uh, Memphis Mini, which does the job, and it's got a line out, so I can plug it into a, into the PA system if I need to. What about microphones? I still use a JT30, a static JT30. I mean, I've used various microphones over the course of my career. You know, I've used a Sure Green Bullet, you know, the 520, and I've used tape recorder mics and AKGs and, you know, mostly earlier in my career, but I don't vary from the JT30. I've had the same one. I've used the same one probably for the last 20 years at least. So is that good at crystal elements? Uh, I believe it's a crystal, yes. I've got a quite a nice microphone collection that I, I have on display in my bookcases, but I don't use any of them. I've got, you know, all kinds of Shures and Turners and Aesthetics and 
These are cool-looking microphones. They look cool, but I just use my Aesthetic JT30. And what about when you're recording, when you have been recording? Do you use any particular microphones for that? No, if I'm playing Amplified, I just use my own, generally my own rig, certainly my own mic. When I recorded the uh, Down in the Mood Room album, originally I brought my Victoria down there, but Duke had this beautiful old uh, Gibson, and it was very warm-sounding, and I really liked it, and I recorded the all the... Uh, Amplified uh, harmonica on down in the mood room is on that old uh, Gibson. Uh, yes, so you generally you know, play through the amp and then uh, capture that sound or recording. Yeah, yeah. I'm playing acoustic and then whatever whatever mic they set up for me. Yeah, brilliant. So you mentioned obviously we're in pandemic time now, and um, so uh, yeah, we're, none of us are very busy at the moment. But have you, have you got any particular plans uh, coming up for uh, during now? You know what you're doing during this time or anything afterwards? Nothing really planned. I don't really look for gigs anymore. I mean, I've got a beautiful life down here on Cape Cod. I've got a beautiful house uh, a couple hundred meters from the ocean. I've got uh, kids. I've got four grandkids, four gra- beautiful granddaughters. i got a nice life. So whatever, whatever I do musically now comes to me, uh, you know, so to speak, over the transom. Uh, you know, people contact me by email or call me or whatever and if it's something i want to do uh for whatever reason then i'll do it but i don't really search out gigs but i try and pick up the harp enough to keep my chops in reasonable shape i mean it's hard listen when you play every day and you're on the bandstand you know a couple hours every night you never need to practice because your practice is up there you keep your muscles sharp and strong and quick to grab, you know, also you keep your mental flow going. So if you're working all the time, it's easy to just keep on doing it. But when, when you don't, I mean, I have to make a conscious effort to pick up the harmonica uh, every day and just do something. But I I try and keep my chops in in reasonable shape so that if, uh, if something comes along that I want to do that, you know, I can still get up there and, and do it. Yeah, and it's great, great to hear you're still playing as well, Jerry. So, so yeah, thanks very much, Jerry Portnoff, for speaking to me. It's been a real pleasure to speak to you today. Well, thank you, Neil. I enjoyed it very much. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. It wouldn't be the same without you. And thanks again for my sponsor, the Long Wolf Blues Company, helping me keeping this thing going. They build great purpose-built equipment for the harmonica, so be sure to check them out. Jerry, let's hear some doodling on that there harmonica of yours.